Well, good morning, church. Encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, our text for today will be verses 9 through 21. Romans 12, 9 through 21. Uh, went through Romans not too long ago, so I thought we'd just do a redo today. Uh, not really, but uh, we're going to be looking at this passage consi- considering its uh, word to us and encouragement to us as we think about uh, who we're called to be as God's people in this world. And I like the fact that you all are creatures of habit. This nice open space you left available for the sound team this morning, and that's very kind of you. Uh, this week they moved to the back. We have a new camera they're testing out this morning. So those of you who are watching our live stream know that you are benefiting, hopefully, from a brand new camera that uh, gives us a little bit more options and better quality, Lord willing. So if you're sensing that, hopefully, this morning, um, if you see some uh, hiccups maybe along the way this week, next week, we're testing it out, and so hopefully it's working well for you. And so we're grateful for, um, uh, to be able to do that, to have that technology. Uh, Romans chapter 12, we're continuing our series called A Peculiar People. We've thought about unity. Last week we looked at uh, what ultimately our mission is as God's people. Um, this morning we want to consider what I call a peculiar presence in this world. We'll define what that looks like in just a moment. Let me read, uh, beginning in verse 9 of Romans chapter 12, as we hear the word of the Lord together. Romans 12, beginning in verse nine. Paul writes, inspired by the Spirit, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this time that we can open your word together and be able to hear it, read it, and to be changed by it. We pray that you would do that this morning, that you would work in our hearts and that you would make us more like Christ and that you would get glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In his book, a book called Christians in the Age of Outrage, Ed Stetzer recounts the 2015 Starbucks Red Cup controversy. There was a Facebook post that year from a prominent evangelical that simply said, Starbucks removed Christmas, all caps, from their cups because they hate Jesus. And without fail, the outrage began. 
Stetzer goes on to write, he says, of course, Starbucks denied the accusation, assured worried Christians everywhere that they were welcome to say Merry Christmas to their heart's content and insisted the company didn't hate Christmas. Stetzer then says, can you imagine the conversation in the Starbucks boardroom? Do you think they were saying, those Christians, they're such fair-minded, gracious, and thoughtful people? I'm guessing not. Now, I'm not sure what the owner of Starbucks thinks about Jesus, but that's not the point. The point is how Christians can often cause more damage in the world, in the midst of a divided culture that's already raging. These kinds of unnecessary controversies can often mar our witness and do more harm than good. We know that Starbucks has never claimed to be a Christian company. Their business is coffee, not Christianity. So we should have zero expectations about what their voice is concerning matters of Christ and Christmas. Stetzer goes on to write, he says, these kinds of controversies are so frustrating. It adds to the perception that Christians are rage-addicted snowflakes and more important, distracted from their Christian mission. To be sure, to be sure, there is much to be outraged about in this world. Red holiday cups that don't say Christmas is not one of them. Unless, of course, it has cold coffee. So when you think about an example like that, I know that's a silly example to some degree. When we think about what it is that we get stirred up about in this world, when we think about outrage, we think about the things that we spend our time debating, discussing. And so I think it should cause us to, to have a little bit of pause and, and, and rethink what is it that we're called to be and do in this world. Outrage is inevitable in this world. It's a broken, sinful world. There are going to be things that are wrong about this world. And there are things that ought to cause us to be outraged. And when we think about our presence as God's people in this broken world, what is it that ought to dominate our presence? You know, a lawyer once asked Jesus what was the greatest commandment, and we all know, we've read the Bible, uh, assumed that those of us who know any, have any familiarity with the Bible would know that his response was not, you must go into the world and see how much division and strife you can stir up. No, his answer was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he goes on and says, and there's a second like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says that all of the commandments are really summed up in these. As God's people, we are called to bear a unique identity in this world. We are called to stand out. We are called to look different, not just for looking different sake, but as we continue to reflect more and more the character and nature of the God who made us and the Savior who saved us. 
we will be a peculiar presence in this world. We will have different convictions. We will say things that are quite different than what most around us are thinking and saying. And there will be plenty of times where the very existence of God's people will be in and of itself offensive and outrageous. We just need to keep in mind that the offense and the outrage is not something that we are called to ignite ourselves. The gospel itself is offensive. We will let it offend. But as God's people, we are called to bear a unique identity in this world. And part of living out that identity, that peculiar presence, is this calling that we have to to love our neighbor, a calling to love. Now, it's important that we put some definition behind that. It's important that we think about, well, what does that mean? Because everyone would say, I can't think of a person in the the world. I don't know everyone in the world. Maybe a few people that I've not met yet. But my guess is, is that the vast majority of the people in this world would say, yes, we should be loving everyone. But when we say that in the context of the church and when we're called very specifically in the scripture to be those who love our neighbors, what does that mean? What does that look like? We know that we're not called to love in the world's definition of love, but in the way that God has called us to love. Our presence in this world should not be one ultimately characterized by outrage, though love will sometimes lead us to be outraged. But our presence in this world should be one that is marked by love. Here in Romans 12, we get a little bit of insight, we could say, as to what that looks like, what that is. And we're going to walk through this text that I just read a few moments ago, and for those of you who are are tracking every word of the the verses that I read, we're not going to analyze every single command. There's a lot of commands. There's a lot of imperatives in this section of Scripture. It's one that we often ought to go back to and and recount and, and, and spend our time meditating upon. But we're going to look at it with the fact that much of what it's calling us to do is found in verse 9 as a summary statement. Let your love be genuine. So we're going to consider what Paul says here in Romans 12 as we think about this calling to love. We're going to see a love that is purposeful, a love that is practical, and a love that is peaceful. Let's begin, first of all, with a love that is purposeful. Look at verse 9. Let love be genuine. Let love be sincere, we could say. I'm saying this is not a call to some sentimental kind of love. This is a real love. This is not just some love in your head or in your emotions, but it's a love that is sincere, a love that is genuine. It's real. It's tangible. You can see it. But love be genuine. Friends, if we're going to grasp the true nature and calling of love in this world, if we're going to truly love God and love our neighbor, then we must first understand where love is Founded, we know that it's founded in the nature and character of God. God is love. John tells us that. 
And because God is love, he's the one that gets to define it. He defines what love is. Biblical love does not ebb and flow with the prevailing winds of culture. Biblical love is not inclusive. Dare I say it? Biblical love at times does make distinctions. You see it in the very next part of verse 9, don't you? Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So we understand that, that there is a that, that, that love is, 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 is rooted in that which is righteous. If our love is going to be genuine, then it must have clearly defined foundation and a clearly defined agenda. Love is not passive about evil in the world. Love is not passive about good. It doesn't operate independent of these categories, nor does it blur distinctions. It's clear. Sometimes love may very well call us to be outraged or compel us to cry out against evils in this world, to confront them. Love does make distinctions. It recognizes the difference between good and evil. This reminds us that even just this one verse, love is not left to our own definition, to what our feelings may say in a given moment or however we want to define it. But we know that the world defines love in a bunch of different ways. So it's important that we understand love. It's rooted in the nature and character of God. It understands the difference between right and wrong, that which is evil and that which is good. And yet that's the opposite of often what we hear today, isn't it? In culture, in the world today, love is certainly disconnected and removed from any sense of God. Or if there's an awareness of God, then they've redefined the nature and character of God. Friends, when we seek to define and practice love, we must keep in mind that it has roots. And those roots go very deep into who God is. It has a very clearly defined agenda and purpose. And that purpose is ultimately, we know, to advance God's purposes in this world. Think about that. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast of what is good. Just think about the gospel for a moment. God's greatest purpose in this world was to glorify himself by redeeming sinners, by his grace. Had there not been clear distinctions of that which was holy and that which was not, that which was righteous and that which was unrighteous, we wouldn't see the gospel for what it truly is. Romans 5 verse 8, Paul says there, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul's not afraid to make distinctions between that which is holy and that which is sinful, and yet it is the love of God that he has for sinners that helps us see that those distinctions aren't blurred. Genuine love is 
purposeful. It's a love that acknowledges distinctions and one that moves towards the ungodly, recognizing the ungodly for who they are. The very foundation of the gospel is an understanding of the love of God for the world, but it's not a love of God that's blind to sin. It's a love that God has despite our sin. He recognizes that. So we see the love that we're being called to here is a, is a purposeful love. It's a grounded love in the nature and character of God, and we should be called to let our love be sincere, let our love be genuine as a reflection of who God is. The second observation we see about love here is it's a love that is practical. There, there are many commands, imperatives in these verses. Indeed, you read this passage and it almost seems like, kind of like reading the Proverbs, like you've just got random things that are just back to back to back to back to back. There's a lot of commands. Uh, virtually every verse begins with some imperative. And as we think through this, many have pointed out that there's really not a clear structure to, that, that, that we find here. However, there does seem to be evident in this list of imperatives and list of commands that much of what Paul is saying here is, a, um, is connected back to that first imperative, let love be genuine. Seems that Maybe that is kind of a summary imperative that all of these others are, are, are flowing out of that in some direct or indirect way. So what I want to do next is identify several ways by looking at what Paul continues to say throughout these verses of how love manifests itself in our day-to-day -day relationships. And as we see these examples, we will see how Christians in particular will stand distinct in the world, that our presence in this world will be different, will look different because of the way that we're called to love people. Let's look at these. First of all, we see that love is warm or affectionate. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection. Paul is addressing the church, the church at Rome here in this context. He's addressing the church here specifically, and he identifies the way, that, the way, how, what it looks like, that we're called to love each other, brotherly affection. This is familial love, family love. It's a love that, that brings us together, that our bond as believers ought to re, be reflective of that as a family. Again, you've heard us say this before, that the church is not an event you attend. It's a body. It's a group of people that you're part of, that you belong to. It's a family. There ought to be closeness and affection in the family. We know that there's a lot of dysfunction in biological families today, and maybe you've had good experiences, maybe you've had bad experiences in your family, but we're called as God's people. We're drawn together because of the mutual embrace of the gospel that we have. We're brought together as family, and this, this closeness ought to continue to increase. One of the things that causes us to stand out in the world as distinct is by the way we love each other. Jesus said that in John chapter 13, verse 35. By, by this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
impossible to be the church. It's impossible to be the church and not have warm, affectionate, tender care for others in the body of Christ. We are called to treat each other like family. Love one another with brotherly affection. Sometimes that can be challenging. Sometimes that can be hard. Sometimes that can test us. But again, we're called as a reflection of letting our love be genuine that we're called to love one another with this family kind of love, with brotherly affection. So love should be warm. Number two, we should see that love is selfless. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. To honor means to treat each other as significant or to treat another as significant, someone who matters. Again, we're not being called here to merely flatter others, hoping for some compliment in return, but to show genuine appreciation and gratitude for one another. Paul wrote in the book of Philippians in chapter 2, verse 3, he said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Sometimes we, as God's people, don't do that very well. Sometimes we are much more concerned and aware and devoted to our own interest above all others. We all have done that. We all have contributed to our own interests first and foremost above all others in some ways and, and in countless ways we could probably confess. But here is a reminder that we're called to outdo one another in showing honor, that we're not called ultimately to be people who serve ourselves, but we're called to be people who honor and seek to consider others more significant even than ourselves. Listen, friends, we don't have to be taught to take care of ourselves, do we? We don't have to be taught how to honor ourselves. You're born with that. You're born with that innate reaction or reflection to take care of yourself and to make sure that you're propping yourself up. But as God's people, saved by grace, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are called to invest ourselves for the sake and well-being and good of others. Sometimes we are quick to be critical. Sometimes we are very selfish, even with our fellow believers. But our attitude and our posture toward others should be one that is quick to affirm them and honor them, even when it's challenging and difficult. Love is selfless. Outdo one another in showing honor. Number three, love is generous. Love is generous. If you skip down to verse 13, you see Paul says there, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So two things under generosity here. Number one is contribute to the needs of the saints. We, friends, we live in a greedy world. A world that encourages you to live for yourself. One that urges you to accumulate for your own prosperity. 
In some ways, the American dream goes radically against the calling that we have as Christians. But here we see that love compels us to to seek the well-being of others, contribute to the needs of the saints. If someone in the body of Christ has need, whatever that need is, seems that he's implying financial need in this context, but whatever the need may be, may not be financial, maybe some other need. But if anyone in the body of Christ has need, financial or otherwise, we as brothers and sisters ought to do all we can to make sure that need is being met. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, they are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. We're we're rich, we're wealthy. Just by our very position of where we are in this culture, this life, this context, and we're called as those who are rich in this present age to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Is Is that how we live our lives, are we in that position of being generous and ready to share with what God has given us? God has given us what we have, not merely to simply enjoy for our own sake, but to be stewards, to do good, and to share with others. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, we see there, we're called, Paul says, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So yes, we are called to do good to everyone. We're called to be generous with all people, Christian or not. But we have a unique and special obligation to be generous to brothers and sisters in the faith. Listen, one of the ways we love others is with our generosity. It's one of the ways that you love, one of the ways that you express your love for other people is by sharing what God has given you, whatever that is, and whatever need they have, and seeking to help meet that need. And if you can't help meet that need, then maybe helping, seeing how others could come alongside and, and help meet that need. God has given us what we have to share and to do good. Resources to steward for his glory, for others' good. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And then he says, and seek to show hospitality. Literally, hospitality means pursuing the love of strangers. So again, it's another call to love. I know a lot of times we think of hospitality as fellowship or socializing and all that. And certainly you can be hospitable and show hospitality to fellow believers, but in the New Testament idea of this term, hospitality was actually something that, that was a call for Christians to be generous towards those even outside of the church, outside of the faith, as we seek to meet their needs and care for them. Specifically in the, in the New Testament era, you didn't have a lot of holiday inns or comfort inns and suites or uh, any of that. You kind of had... Airbnb, except it was free-ish, right? You didn't have a lot of those hotel kinds of things. And so as people would be traveling in and out of town, you would have the opportunity to host people in your home. And that's exactly what we're being called here, to seek to be hospitable, to be generous to outsiders, to to love not just Christians, but even those who aren't. Not only those that we know, but those that we don't know. 
Showing hospitality is a happy privilege we are called to engage in as an act of generosity towards others, which is a reflection of our love for others. Love is generous. It is generous. Next, love is present. Love is present. Continue to read. We're coming back to verse 14 in just a moment, but look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Friends, when we belong to a community, in this case, the church, when we belong to a group of fellow believers, then the successes of others are our successes and the disappointments of others are our disappointments. But here's a truth that we all need to own up to. Our affections are naturally disordered because of sin. That means that our tendency, our tendency is to be relieved when others are mourning and self-pitying when others are rejoicing. That's our tendency. Weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice is not natural. It's a call, it's a manifestation of love, but it's not something we naturally do. What we naturally do is when others are mourning, we're thankful that it's not us. Or when others are rejoicing, we're saying, why can't I have that? Friends, just a few questions to consider for us this morning. Are you truly happy for others when they succeed? When they got the promotion and you didn't? When they seem to be prospering financially and you aren't? When they are healthy and you aren't? Are you truly happy when you see others around you rejoicing? Or are you envious? Friends, are you truly able to mourn with others in their grief? Or do you find that you're just relieved that it's not you having to endure that? Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. This is a call for us as an expression of love to be present in people's lives, to experience what they experience best we can, and to weep with them when they're weeping, to rejoice when they're rejoicing, to truly celebrate their celebrations, and to mourn their losses. Love means that we are present in these ways. Implied in that, implied in that is that we have been present all along. It it implies community, it implies relationship, it implies proximity, doesn't it? You're not going to be easily able to rejoice with someone that you don't have any connection to, per se. It implies proximity. We're called to be present in the joys and we're called to be present in the valleys of others so that we can genuinely share in their pain and in their comforts this life brings. Love is present. 
this is a hard one to consider because of our tendency. We don't naturally rejoice with others who are rejoicing. We don't naturally weep with those who are weeping. Praise God, if you find it easier over time, that is a work of grace in your heart, the presence of the Holy Spirit enabling you to do that. Praise God for that if you find it easier. It's just not our default. I think it's just a good check for our own hearts. Are we truly happy? Are we truly happy when others are happy? Are we mourning, truly mourning, when others are mourning? Love is present. Number next, whatever that next is, love is harmonious. Love is harmonious. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Most scholars seem to think that Paul was anticipating here some tension, perhaps, between Jews and Gentiles in the Roman church. He doesn't say that here, but that's what most seem to to be thinking, that there could be that tension. There could have been already examples of tension. Maybe he's anticipating future tensions. But he says in verse 16, live in harmony with one another. He's calling believers here to have a common mindset of one another. He's, He's fighting against the sin of partiality. Know that the world breeds division. We're going to be having a whole sermon on that alone in a couple of weeks. But we know here, just as a a point about love, called to live in harmony with one another, we know that the world breeds division and wants to separate us in all kinds of camps and groups. And we buy right into it. We buy right into it. And I'm not saying that camps and groups are innately bad and wrong. I'm just saying that that when there's division, it's everybody to his or her own corner. We experience, we, we experience that. I don't have to tell you. I don't have to give you the examples. You know the examples. They abound. There's so many of them. And it happens even in the church. And yet here we're called to live in harmony. We're called to live in harmony. Harmony in the church is rooted in who we are as God's people bearing his image and as recipients of God's grace as we share in this mutual blessing of salvation. We're going to have all kinds of different experiences. We're going to have all kinds of of thoughts about certain things. And if we're not talking about primary, even secondary things, if we're talking about things that where we can or maybe matters of conscience or other things in this life, and we're, we're, we're rooting ourselves in division there. It's, we're not called to live that way. We're called to be those who extend grace to one another with care and kindness. Harmony. There's everything in the world today that, that you can latch on to that will divide you. But love is harmonious. It seeks, as we've seen earlier, the good of others. It seeks to value the dignity and worth of others, to respect them and to care for them. Even when you may have disagreements about certain things, it still says, no, I love you because of who you are in the Lord. Love is harmonious. Love is humble. The next observation. Love is humble. In verse 15 or excuse me, um, 16, Paul says, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, 
but associate with the lowly. Associate with the lowly. Love calls us to humble ourselves. Love calls us to humble ourselves and not see others as below us or beneath us. Again, likely a reference to Jew-Gentile relations and tensions, perhaps. But Paul has spent, as we remember when we walked through Romans, if you weren't here, uh, we did go through Romans. And in the first 11 chapters of Romans, we see just this glorious, beautiful description of God's work of redemption, his, his work of grace. The fact that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that, that God has done this great work that he's planned and executed through the sending of his own son to be the savior of sinners. It's this beautiful display and description of grace. And what Paul is getting at here is that this grace that you have received is a grace that should humble you. A humbling grace. It's a grace that humbles us so that we do not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. But that we understand exactly who we are, no matter where we are in life, no matter status or whatever the case may be, no matter what it is that we have enjoyed in this life, we are all sinners and we all as Christians have been redeemed by grace, not by how good we've performed or the works that we've done. Those who are the lowly are those that society tends to ignore, to cast aside, to not highly value. And if we're not careful, we can foster same kinds of attitudes towards the lowly. We all can, we all can do that. We all have done that. We've all thought ourselves better than others at some point in time. And where the world tends to look down upon such people, the Bible does just the opposite. It calls us to value them, to love them, to not be haughty, but to actually, not just to say, okay, they're, they're decent folks. What does it say? Associate with them. It doesn't just say acknowledge their presence, give them a little head nod. It says associate yourself with them. A church that is seeking to be faithful to Christ above all else will eagerly pursue all types of people regardless of worldly classifications. It doesn't mean we ignore such classifications. The Bible makes classifications. Rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, male and female. There are types of people in the world. But it doesn't mean that we assess someone's dignity and worth based upon those classifications. It, may, it means that we base our understanding of who they are because they're made in the image of God, because of how God has created them in his likeness and how he has given them the same hope that we've been given. Love is humble. It reminds us of who we are, and it compels us to love the lowly, to associate with them, to welcome them, to be present in their lives, not to, dis, not to segregate ourselves away from them. That's one of the dangers you heard us talk about before with the whole homogeneous unit principle. It used to be popular in missions, basically where you would plant churches that looked like 
these kinds of groups of people. And you've all these, you've got cowboy churches, you've got suburban churches, you've got inner city churches, you've got this kind of church, that kind of church, all these kinds of churches. And this is not helpful when, when we're called to, to, to love people. We're called to associate with different kinds of people in this world. And how beautiful it is when these people are brought together by grace and share the same family together. Love is humble. Love is humble. That's the practice of love. We could go on and on and we could say so much more about all of those things. But we also see number three that not only is it purposeful, not only is it practical, we see that it is peaceful, which is really an extension of practical. I just wanted a third point, so I made a third one. Back to verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, love is a peace. It's a call to peace. It's a call to be peacemakers in this world. There's a lot that Paul has said about how we love each other in the church. But now there's instruction, it seems, of how we are to treat those outside of the church, specifically those who would be our persecutors, those who would be our quote-unquote enemies. And this is really, I think, one of the, the ways that we are distinct in the world. This is not how the world operates. If you have an enemy in the world, you are opposed to them, and you're not, you're not at all going to seek to love them. The, the, the Christian ethic is radically different. These commands, again, go against our natural impulse and everything that we're taught in this world. When we are hurt, our tendency is to hurt back, but that's not the way of love. Several things about this peaceful love that we see here. First of all, it replaces this love that we're called to, replaces a vengeful spirit. In verse 14, Paul identifies Christian persecution here. Again, it's easy to give love to those who treat us well. The world does that. You don't have to be Christian to do that. But what actually makes us distinct in the world is our capacity not to seek revenge, not just that, but even to bless our persecutors. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus saw this sometime back as we've been working through the gospel of Luke. In Luke 6, verse 27, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. The one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. For one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. And gone he goes to love our enemies. Stephen in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, we know that Stephen becomes the first martyr of the church. And as they're stoning him, literally Stephen cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He's loving his enemies. He's loving his persecutors. Friends, our temptation is to be a people when we are yelled at to yell back louder. 
And we do unnecessary harm to the gospel when we act more like our persecutors than not. And so, call to this kind of love is a call to replace a vengeful spirit, not to seek to, re, to, to, to bring revenge when we've been attacked or harmed or whatever. But rather, we're called to bless, to pray for, to love. Second observation about this call to being peacemakers is it prioritizes our responsibility. Look at verse 18. I mentioned this last week, but look at it here this week. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, with all. We are called to be peacemakers, and whenever there is conflict in our family and our workplace, our neighborhood, our community, our nation, it ought to be. If if conflict exists, wherever you are, if you are in close proximity to conflict or in the midst of it in some way, conflict should exist in spite of us rather than because of us. One way we demonstrate love is by initiating peace. We know that this is conditional, isn't it? Look at verse 18. It says two things. If possible, and so far as it depends on you. If it's even possible, live peaceably with all. And as so far as it's dependent upon you, make sure that you're not the one holding the peacemaking process up. If there is conflict, make sure, Christian, that it is not due to your unwillingness to live at peace. We know that peace is a two-way street. Again, the text tells us if possible, so far as it depends on you, meaning that we need to be sure we're not the ones holding things up. It prioritizes our responsibility. So this call to love is a call to action. It's a call to initiate peace. It's a call to make sure that we're doing everything we possibly can to make sure that peace exists in our personal relationships. And last, it seeks good. It seeks good, and we see that it's pretty self-explanatory here in this last few verses. Behold, never... Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord will bring ultimate justice and vengeance on that great and final day. But then he goes on to verse 20 and says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head. You in some way will shame him. You will show that he is the one at fault, not you. We overcome evil not with louder evil or more outrageous evil. We overcome evil by doing good, by serving, by loving, by engaging, by caring, by showing empathy. It's a radically different approach than what you'll find in the world. This is what makes us stand as distinct. This is what makes our presence peculiar in this world is the way that we love people. Brothers and sisters, this is what we're called to do. We're we're called with a special responsibility to love the family of God in unique ways that are different perhaps than the way that we're called to love others outside of the family, but that doesn't mean that we stop just with the church. We're called to love people, yes, in the church, but we're also called to love our neighbor. We're called to love those outside of the body of Christ in ways that may oftentimes be uncomfortable and difficult. 
This is why we stand distinct in the world, because we reflect something this world lacks. So the way of the Christian is the way of love. It's not a love that we conjure up in our own mind. It's a love that is properly grounded in the nature and character of God. It is a love that is faithfully practiced and a love that is intentionally peaceful. As God's people, we must put ourselves in the position of accepting the demands that are placed upon us when we are called to love in these ways. I think one of the things that when I, when I read a passage like this and I think of the way that God calls us to love, it's, it's one of the most radical callings we have. Yet it's called a, a calling to love that must be real and shows the world something it very much needs when, ironically, it thinks it has it. Brothers and sisters, there's plenty of outrage to go around in the world. And we will certainly share in it when it's appropriate. But there's very little love. There's very little genuine, biblical, God-honoring love. So friends, let's be faithful in modeling it, in living it, in showing it. And as we show it and as we express it, we are showing ultimately just how great and glorious God's love is. So let's be faithful in modeling love, first for the Lord and then for the good of our neighbor. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder. Thank you for the calling that you've given us to be your people as we're called to be salt and light in this world to reflect that which is good. Lord, you call us to be a people of love. And that word alone gets so blurred in this day and time. Father, we just thank you that we can come together this morning and think rightly about it, to be reminded of what it is and how it's expressed and why, Lord, even we do so. Lord, would you help us to be a people who love well? Would you forgive us when we have failed to love well? Would you forgive us, Lord, when we have sought to love ourselves above others, even above you? And Father, would you help us to be distinct as we grow in love and as we grow in grace? Father, we thank you for this great love that you have for us, a love that demonstrated your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, your love is what compelled you to ultimately give your life for our sake. Lord, would you help us to be a people who reflect that love well? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.